Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content, written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. We are joined today by our friend, Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize winning science journalist and the person who has kept us informed and mm, I was going to say sane, but at least coping throughout the long COVID epidemic. We're now coming up, I think, approaching our second anniversary of talking to you about COVID in one form or another, just a few months away. Hi, Lori. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Just moments before we're recording this, the president of the United States got on national television and spoke of our winter plan to cope with COVID. It involves people coming to the United States having to get a COVID screening one day before rather than three days before they fly. It involves uh, some more restrictions on international travel. What it does not involve is more restrictions on domestic travel. It does not involve broader mandates as mask and vaccine mandates are now under assault politically and in the courts. It does not involve things that they've got in Europe like digital passports and and that sort of thing. How do you think we're doing? Are we like pulling out all the stops or are we not pushing hard enough? David, the problem is that we've never had a strategy. We haven't had one since January 2020. We've been in reactive mode with the virus pulling us by the nose. Every single step has been a, oh, no, look what the virus is doing now. We should do this. You know, there's a famous phrase in Pentagon speak, which is we're always fighting the last war. And what that's meant to say is we always come to the battlefield with plans and ideas and equipment suitable to whatever was the prior conflict. But now you find yourself in the jungle instead of the mountains, and the stuff that was working in in the mountains doesn't work in the jungle. We're in that situation constantly with COVID. We have 
responded to one permutation, one new variant, one new trend after another, each time it's racing to catch up with the virus. And the virus is always out in front. I think that what the president has done as of today and the activation of not only travel restriction related things, but huge increase in testing and a massive subsidy of home test kits so that the now overly expensive, ridiculously, absurdly expensive home test kits that would make a family of four have to spend $100 every single time the family got tested. Those are, will now be free for most people. And uh, Medicaid is ordered to cover it. Medicare is ordered to cover it. So there are many steps he's taking that are about trying to get more people aware of their status faster. But we now for sure have two identified cases in America, and one of them is likely to have resulted from an individual being in New York City. And for that individual to have interacted in a convention in New York City and then gone on to Minnesota where he or she, we don't know uh, gender, uh, was diagnosed. Well, that probably means that we have it here in New York City. And while we have a great health department and they're out there hustling like crazy to try and find any samples, if history serves us, we're going to know what we have when it's already pervasive. One other thing the president announced was getting the vaccine out to the rest of the world a little bit faster. He underscored again that the United States is providing more vaccine to the world at no charge than all the other countries of the world added up. And I think the number at last count was around a billion vaccine doses. But I've seen estimates that suggest that what the world needs is something like 9 billion vaccine doses to stop the vaccine in the the global South. And of course, that's perhaps where this Omicron variant originated from. But in any event, we're not going to stop the spread until we really get the vaccine out there more broadly. Do you think, again, the U.S. is leading the world? Is it enough? Should the U.S. be doing more? The Biden administration has put a lot of pressure on both Pfizer and Moderna to crank up production adequately to meet the needs of the world. The problem that we're having is that it's really so far almost a unilateral American effort. Even though there's a multinational in place, it's called COVAX, kind of run jointly by a a variety of different agencies on the international level. And even though lip service is given by other wealthy countries, the truth is the United States is the only country that's really substantially getting vaccine for free to countries in need. And In response to fears about Omicron, a lot of European countries finally started to let loose with some of their parsimonious supplies and suddenly flooded African countries with so much vaccine that the African Union said, wait, 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 slow down here. You know, this stuff has to be in deep freeze. And we've already had to throw doses out because we don't have the infrastructure for distribution on this scale. Please give us steady supplies on a steady schedule 
so that we can plan and execute accordingly. And the World Bank stepped in last night and said, you know, we're on this too. We agree. This has got to be, you know, you don't just dump a pile of crap on on somebody who has three friends to help lift it all. You've got to help with the infrastructure. You've got to help with the training. You've got to get personnel, syringes, cold chain, all of it in place. That's where we stand right now is that finally the donor pool is deepening, but it's chaotic. So I see we are joined by our partner in crime and friend, Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, formerly of the Obama White House, and as recently as 30 seconds ago of MSNBC, because (laughs) Grant was like, where's Kavita? And I turned over and I saw she was on the television. Supposed to be on the last block of the last hour, which you see how that went. So, yeah. Well, as you could sort of tell, uh, we've been talking to Lori about the president's remarks and whether we think that's adequate. So why don't you give us your take on that? Uh, And I I have to recommend I tweeted, which, as David and Lori know, is like resurrecting me from a grave to get me to do it these days. I tweeted one of Lori's is FP, wasn't it, Lori? Is that where it's placed to just put a plug in? for a very important article kind of highlighting what I think a lot of people have forgotten about with the relationship in South Africa with HIV and actually its ability to detect variants of concern or interest, kind of the irony, and yet a stunning lack of treatment and kind of this uh, viral reservoir, if you will. Look, I think the president kind of did what he had to do short of the very things he's tried to do and has been failing in courts and appellate decisions with trying to enforce mandates. I would love to see things like, a, I know I'm completely unpopular for saying this, I would love to see things like domestic travel testing requirements, domestic vaccine requirements. My feeling is like we just need to have so many barriers that people have to get vaccinated. We do it in New York City. You guys can tell me how it works with restaurants and social places. I'm very disappointed that we still have these bizarre Southern Africa travel restrictions that, uh, what, an hour ago, I heard Jen Psaki kind of defending, and I still find no credible evidence-based defense of that. The kind of adage of let's just do this to buy time. And David, you have much broader sense of international policy than I do, but I have yet to find an evidence base that gives me credible reason from a health standpoint to do it. And certainly now that we have evidence of what is defined as community transmission. People who have gotten Omicron, people, the individual in Minnesota who was infected and didn't know quite from where, a conference in New York City at the Javits Center uh, that, you know, but doesn't, had no international travel. That's, I don't know why we're wasting time with travel restrictions that seem to just ostracize us and completely continue slightly racist and xenophobic attitudes from the Trump administration to be candid. Let's put it this way, David, we've talked about President Biden. He is a market improvement, but I do worry. And I've been, Lori, I'm looking at the kind of RSA data, South African data coming out. This defines his presidency. This could make him a one-term president. So I feel like nothing should be spared at this point. If you look at the growth rate in cases identified and hospitalizations in South Africa, It's a steeper curve than I have ever seen in any epidemic I have ever been in anywhere in the world. 
Now, just to, because David knows I try to be optimistic and I fail 100% of the time, Lori, the only thing I'm still waiting for is were those largely kind of to your article, right? Were these people with other conditions such as HIV or were they Delta naive? Were these people who, and then now we also know that Delta, in fact, we, we can go down a rabbit hole of, you know, here's some preprint studies that show that if you had previous infection, it doesn't protect you against Omicron, et cetera. But I, I agree, Lori, what came out today made me feel like we went from bad to worse. <laughs> and that's not, that, that's not a place I want to be. <laughs> well, and I would add that we're seeing with this virus so far, and again, we have to be very careful because everything, we're early stages here and everything is unfolding so rapidly that when I write a story about something related to Omicron, I rewrite it like eight times before it's published because of constantly new input and information. But it does look like this has the highest reinfection rate we've ever seen with any variant, meaning you had COVID, you have never gotten sick again with COVID, but with this one, you will, you very likely will. And what that tells us is that we need to be very nervous about just how effectively this variant is escaping stimulation from from vaccines to our immune system. It has so many mutations in the portion of the virus that interacts with the immune system that we have to worry not just what each individual mutation does Mm -hmm. and how it might affect, let's say, something like triggering dendritic cells of the immune system. But we also have to think about how the various mutations interact with each other to alter the conformation of a section of the protein. I mean, at this point, and we're we're all going to obviously need to await a huge amount of very sophisticated state-of-the-art laboratory work, but at this point, what worries me is that you just can't have that many mutations and have a thing that looks like the other thing. I mean, to put just put this in crass terms, and this will be way oversimplified, but I mean, you could have a standard major league baseball certified baseball, and then you can go through and say, I'm going to make ones, but I'm going to have every other stitch in the stitching of the outside of the baseball be different. It'll be bigger or smaller. It'll be a different thickness of thread, whatever. And then when you hold the two baseballs up, the pitcher says, I can't throw this thing. It won't fit in my hand anymore. I can't do a professional job with this baseball. It's just, it's very hard to imagine that you can have probably around 56 mutations for this set of proteins and that they would in any way resemble, you know, to the interactive systems in the human body, the prior protein structures that are familiar. So, Kavita. Prior to your uh, joining us, Lori used the analogy of uh, generals fighting the last war and underscored a point she's made here before, that we don't really have a strategy, that we're reacting. The virus is actually driving the car in this case, and, and we're just responding to where it's taking us. Obviously, I'd, I'd like Lori's response to this as well, but Kavita, are we looking at this the wrong way? We're still looking at this like this is a distinct 
disease, you get a vaccine, you eliminate the disease. But it seems to be mutating rapidly, being spread so broadly that perhaps there is some kind of more fundamental approach to public health that we need. Tell me what you think. David, I don't know if you feel this way ever. There are days where I really wish I, I do feel like clinically I'm not sitting on the sidelines, but I feel like my policy brain is sitting on the sidelines somewhat. And today was one of those days because I, you know, over the course of a couple of hours this morning, it was my friend in California who runs their health department. And I was talking to him about their genetic surveillance. And then the person in Hennepin County is somebody I did my residency with. Like, so these are like peers and friends of mine. And then New York City, the commissioner there is an amazing individual, Dave Chukchi, great person, very calm, kind of even tone. And all of them said the same thing. We're going to do the best we can. We have what we've had in place for a long time. It's really disappointing that we feel like there's just not much support beyond what we've been doing ourselves on our backs. And we're lucky we've got governors or, you know, fill in the blank officials. A lot of people don't. Florida, for example. And Laura, you've kind of tweeted and talked about this. But the CDC, I today felt like, gosh, this is a real, you can call it an indictment of the CDC, or you can just say that it's a broad indictment of any administration, including Obama, including Biden, every Democrat and reasonable Republican, to not have ever prioritized public health. And 20 months into this, and we're still not like prioritizing public health. We have surveillance. People use that term a lot. We have states that are doing genetic samples and trying to identify Omicron if they can. But we don't actually have a surveillance system. <laughs> like We have no surveillance system at a national level. And what's frustrating is Lori and I kind of, Lori, I don't know how you feel. I feel like I sit and wait for weeks for some morbidity and mortality report to come out from the CDC that kind of nightly, nicely puts a little bow on it with tables and infographics. I need less of that. And I need more of what, as chaotic as it feels, what comes out of South Africa, what even comes from public health, England, what I, you know, there's, there's other countries like South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan. I mean, I can point to parts of the world where they just do a better job because they actually have a health system. I mean, I agree with most of what you said, obviously, but I would go a step further. I would say this. If we had been thinking strategically at any point and really trying to say, how do we get ahead of this virus? How are we in the lead? Or at least we're sharing the driver's seat, not just sitting in the back seat in the kitty chair, totally strapped in for the ride. You know, surveillance would have been top of the list, along with creating cohorts. And I would have imagined in a ideal state of public health, that we would have had a set of, of public health cohorts set up, things like, uh, say, populations in nursing homes, school dormitory oh, populations. Okay. You can identify key group jails. Mm-hmm. And that these cohorts would have been subjected to constant testing so that we're on the lookout for any kind of shift in the way the virus is moving around and we're ahead of it. We still don't have any darn cohorts. I mean, there are some academic cohorts set up, but there's no real systematic way of doing this. The CDC, on the one hand, is trying to say when Walensky's in these White House briefings I sit through almost every day now, on the one hand, she's saying, 
you know, we've expanded our surveillance because we got surprised by Delta and we're, we've just mm-hmm. got a huge amount going on out there. And if Omicron's there, we'll find it, blah, blah. But on the other hand, they're saying we're going to encourage all of America to do home testing, free mm-hmm. home test kits to all Americans. Well, guess what? That's completely lost data. The only person who sees the result of that home test. It could work if they monitored. Lori, home testing could be helpful if they do, as you identify, kind of a mechanistic way of, okay, we've given, Public Health England does that, right? Like there's a centralized way of understanding how many tests to whom, and they don't try to find the answers to all. And and actually they've been criticized that they quote over-surveil, right? They over-monitor. And sure, they didn't pick up Omicron early either. So, and I'm sure it's in London. I'm sure it's there. But I completely agree. And there's such a, anyway, yeah. You know, it'd be very simple to send people tests. Yeah. It costs 20 bucks. But if you enter the data into a database in the computer, it's free, right? So all you have to do to get it for free is to enter the data. And all of a sudden, you've got a lot of data. That's more than than our government seems prepared to do. <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to have monoclonal antibody teams. I was like, who's going to get monoclonal antibodies when they've already said we do, they don't work? Like what? I mean, I'm not understanding what we're doing. Worse yet, worse yet, who's going to get monoclonal antibodies against a rapidly mutating virus? Oh, great. Now the monoclonal antibodies will add another level of selection pressure. And now a Merck drug that also adds some sort of mutational selection pressure too. So I'm, I I don't know. For those of us who were on the front lines with HIV back in the eighties, and we saw one by one, the introduction of monotherapies to deal Mm -hmm. with HIV, ACT and then DDI and then DDC and so on. What we saw was that, you know, you throw AZT out and pretty soon half the HIV population has viruses that are resistant to AZT. You throw DDI out, boom, resistance to DDI. Throw DDC out, boom. And finally, you get all the way into the late 90s before the drug companies agree to take down their patent barriers enough to share their various formulations to create combination. And then... Just as you see every day with your patients, Kavita, with uh, antibiotics, you recognize that you either slam the subject, the target, with all the firepower you've got at once, mm-hmm. and so you hit it on all barrels so it can't mutate rapidly enough to get around all of the various modes of attack at the same time, or you just don't play the game. You don't get out there and throw things on the field. But the virus says, oh, I have to mutate this way. Oh, I have to evolve this way. I have to evolve that way. All we're doing right now is hastening selection pressure. We're just boosting COVID evolution. David, how do other countries kind of see us, not not our response to Omicron, like, do they just see us? I feel like there's this visual, if like, we just look like gluttonous pigs that are just, you know, gluttonous pigs that, you know, have these bizarre partisan arguments over like Wuhan lab leaks, et cetera. Do other countries just kind of think we're a mockery in our response to COVID and what's happening? Or do they actually still hold some hope that because Biden is like at least not Donald Trump, that we can lead the way? I I worry we've lost any global diplomacy who takes us seriously right now. I mean, but I'm asking. I don't think any it's unqualified one way or another. We're not Donald Trump. That was all bad. We're providing billion doses. We're 
trying to get people vaccinated. We're doing science-based response to this, and people see us engaging again with COVAX and other things like the WHO, WHO, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But having said that, we're at 56% vaccination rate. We have one of two political parties actively opposing the steps we need to take. There's a kind of a view, a couple of people I've talked to, you know, I think they think America is a little cracked as a country. You know, it's politics are dysfunctional. You know, how it handles this kind of thing is dysfunctional. Certainly the way we handle gun violence is dysfunctional. And, you know, they just sort of see this as a, as a symptom of the American disease, of this, you know, special pathology that we have here. And, and honestly, I think that's fair. I went mm-hmm. to Michigan for Thanksgiving and was in Ann Arbor, which is theoretically, you know, the uh, was sort of one of the more informed areas. Nobody was wearing masks. There were huge crowds. There was a football game there on Saturday where there were like 100,000 people in a stadium and there were almost no masks. It's crazy. Crazy. And Michigan hospitals are at the highest level of being occupied by COVID cases that they've ever been at. I mean, it's kind of the pot calling the kettle black. When you look around Europe, their policies are as messed up as can be. And you're hard pressed to find a country to name that's doing a terrific job. At certain points, New Zealand's looked great, you know, nice tiny island nation in the middle of nowhere. Iceland was looking great for a while. Singapore up, down. South Korea up, down. But all over the world, they're having trouble dealing with COVID. And it's a lot of the same internal political squabbles that we see. So our squabbles, of course, all ultimately also reflect our underlying consistent theme of American failure, which is racism and the legacy of slavery and how we deal with inequities in our society. But every single society has these underlying tensions that are historic and that have, you know, pitted one group against another for huge amounts of time. And COVID is exploiting them. We have tension in our systems all over the world. I mean, I'm really worried like today, if you were a soccer fan, today is a banner day because right at this moment, Manchester United and Arsenal are competing. You don't get bigger than that. That's like, that's the Super Bowl times 10. And all over, not just the UK, but anywhere where anybody can get in front of the internet, if they're a soccer fan, mm-hmm. they're watching Manchester United versus Arsenal. And they're doing it in pubs and they're doing it in crowds, doing it in stadiums. And, you know, I'm worried. Has Boris Johnson got anything going there in the UK to prevent spread? If somebody with Omicron is, At the game right now at Manchester United versus Arsenal is the crowd exposed. We can go down lists. I mean, I think China's really in bad shape on all this because they've had this zero COVID policy. Nobody is taking tougher measures to isolate and control potential carriers of COVID than China. And the repressive activities are really extreme. But their economy is suffering tremendously from doing this very isolationist approach. And of course, they're about to host the Olympics. I don't see China as a shining example either. 
Yeah, on so many levels. Normally at this point in the podcast, we'll take a little bit of break and the people who are visiting with us um, who aren't subscribers wrap it up. And then the people who are subscribers get some bonus content the last 10 or 15 minutes of the podcast. But because this issue is of such great public interest, I think we're going to skip that. We're just going to keep going through so that everybody gets access to what we're going to talk about. And so in the remaining 10 or so minutes, um, I'd like to turn to you, Kavita, and I'd like to turn to you, Lori, and have a little bit of a discussion about prognosis and where this goes. Kavita, you, you, you describe that if we don't get our arms around this, this is going to be the end of Biden's presidency. And uh, that, that I, you know, I think that's true because it, it will mean economic downturn and, and a lot of suffering. But is that where we are? What do we need to know to know better? No, I and, and I say this because not because I want that to happen. God help us. But I do worry that that is now, you know, Nate Silver might give it a, a much higher probability than there was 48 hours ago, even. So I best case, worst case scenario. Our best case scenario at this point is that our vaccines are still effective. I'm looking for, you know, I'll, I'll take 55 to 60 percent as a win of effectiveness. We'll know some of that in coming weeks. That's a best case scenario. And that we have pretty decent immunity for people who are infected with Delta that we don't have that, that basically that Omicron does not outcompete Delta. I think the big thing is, can it displace Delta, which is still dominant everywhere else in the world? And so that would be a best case scenario, to be honest, like just having Delta continue as sad as it sounds, continue to kind of burning its way through. The worst case scenario, I think you kind of heard Lori and I alluding to it. Lori definitely has escaping the current immunity, both natural and vaccine-based immunity, posing a risk for reinfection in people and, and then utter just chaos because we then need probably to discuss, yes, we can have manufacturers make new vaccines, but you have to look with viruses to not have such a tailored vaccine because we're also having to worry about the variants that have not yet to be identified. I worry that if that worst case scenario happens, that David, we're just, I don't think the American public, as exhibited by what Lori just said and behavior you saw in Ann Arbor and I saw over Thanksgiving, public isn't going to do more. And I think there's even there are days where I'm not willing to do more. And we all have pills that are going to be highly sought after. I, one of the most popular things that are going to happen are going to be little pill mills where you can theoretically get uh, pharmacy prescriptions for these oral antivirals and kind of worst case scenario, as Lori points out, leading to a selection of mutated strains that are even worse than before. And all of that is possible, to be honest. I don't know. I don't know. Something happened with me with looking at the South African data that made me just kind of go to a very dark place. I am not totally there yet. I'm not Mike Osterholm. I have my kind of radar of like, I'm in the like Mike Osterholm, the sky is falling in doom and gloom. And then slightly more reasonable. You know, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as Scott Gottlieb. So I'm probably still somewhere kind of sort towards the center, but that's how I see things playing out or two possibilities. I think I see things a little differently. I mean, in general terms, we're in agreement, but I think that the Republican strategy right now is evolving to say the following, look, we can't get ahead of the virus. And we don't think this virus is as big a deal as the Democrats say it is anyway. Uh, you know, it's only old people dying. 
and they're dispensable and we need herd immunity. And, uh, you know, everybody's tried everything. And the best thing is to just let this burn through the population and keep the economy going. And I can see now already there's a tweet storm going on saying, look at West Virginia. They've had the biggest decline in Delta cases of any place in the nation, and they have the lowest vaccination rate in the nation, to which I say yes. But that's because in mid-September, they had an out-of-control, galloping Delta epidemic with every single ICU in excess of 100% of capacity. So, okay, you know, it's come down. It's come down from a high that is above where it was at the worst in 2020. Mm-hmm. I think we're I think we're walking into I think mean, I think we're walking into a whole new level of political divide and that it's it's going to end up in a place so dark where you have the Republicans literally saying the public health establishment has failed that now we have Laura Logan on Fox uh-huh. News every day saying that the best way to describe Tony Fauci is to call him Joseph Mengele. And the best way to describe the Biden administration's policies is to call it Auschwitz. And I, I really think where we're headed is going to be worse than the great divide we already can see statistically in survival rates between Republicans and Democrats because of Republican refusal to take appropriate treatment and vaccination. But I think we're going to actually get to a point where on the street level, Republicans are actively and violently opposing efforts to control COVID. I am drawing less of a distinction on the kind of Republican-Democrat divide, but I, I see your point. I think in parallel, David, you hinted at this. We've had three pandemics at the same time, kind of the assault on women's rights, covid gun violence, actually fine, maybe fourth and fifth, mental health. And I think there's a point at which like even people who I think go into medicine and try to do the right thing, like me, just say, screw it. Like I can't, none of us can do this anymore. And that we're getting much closer to. So if it's not COVID, let's say Omicron, let's say everything just was rosy, you know, with COVID in general, and it was all fine. And the summer of freedom actually happens. These other things kind of weigh on you. And what happens when you've got half the country that feels that way, women who feel that this kind of, I mean, just listening to Amy, like, I can't help but think, I know you're discussing this in another pod. I can't help but think when Amy Comey Barrett's like, what's the big deal with like giving birth? Like you can just give birth and give the baby away. That's no problem. Like that's what, that's what's happening. Like that combined with what Lori discussed, that's like the breaking of our backs, I think. I agree with you. And I wish we had more time to discuss this. And I'm sure we will come back to discuss it at greater length. In the future, to me, listening to the Supreme Court yesterday was a gut punch because it was very clear to me that a right that has been the right of American women for 50 years is going away. It's going away as a result of a decades long effort to get candidates for the Supreme Court to lie to the United States Senate and then go to the Supreme Court with the intention of finding a case like this and removing that right. But I think the broader picture, which you describe, I've actually written a column about, and I think it'll be out tomorrow, possibly in the Daily Beast. And and, and essentially what I call it is a cold civil war. Mm-hmm. If you take any of these issues, the divide between blue states and red states, whether it's on science or on women 
or on guns or on education, history, on values, on the role of government is growing rapidly and being institutionalized rapidly. And we are going to end up, you know, with a divide between sort of the coasts and the north and the and the midsection and the south. That's unlike anything we've ever seen. There's not going to be a shooting war. Country's not going to break in two. But because we have a federalist system, it's going to be a two-speed country on all of these things. In any event, more of that later. Uh, as always, both of you are extremely uh, enlightening and thought-provoking and helpful. And we're grateful for that. So uh, thank you, Lori. Thank you to Kavita. Thank you to everybody for listening. Obviously, if you were listening, then you're going to make some effort to stay healthy out there, be sensible, and continue to follow us here at the DSRnetwork.com. Thank you all. Bye-bye.